Hello, health investor. Welcome to another episode of the Health Investment Podcast. Today, you're going to hear from Dr. Melina Jampolis. Dr. Jampolis is an internist and board-certified physician nutrition specialist, one of only several hundred practicing in the United States. She's the past president of the National Board of Physician Nutrition Specialists and has served on their board of directors for nearly a decade. Trained as an internist, for the past 20 years, she has specialized exclusively in nutrition for weight loss, disease prevention, and treatment. Dr. Jampolis is currently the Chief Nutrition Officer for BLK Water, and her current clinical work focuses on the new and rapidly growing field of precision nutrition and nutrigenetics. In the episode, Dr. Jampolis shares one nutrition principle she's changed her mind about over the years, advice for anyone experiencing intense cravings, her overall weight loss approach in just a few concise sentences, and more. But before we get to the episode, I want to share one of my favorite resources with you, thrivemarket.com. I don't know about you, but I used to think that eating healthy meant I had to spend a lot of time and money at the grocery store. That is until I discovered Thrive Market. Thrive is an online grocery shopping platform that's essentially a mix of Costco, Whole Foods, and Amazon. Since they deliver groceries directly to your door, they're able to cut out all middle people and heavily discount their inventory. When I buy groceries on Thrive versus going to my local supermarket, I save at least $20 per order, and I'm able to fill up my cart from the comfort of my couch. To read my full Thrive Market review, steal my shopping list of over 150 items, and save additional money on your first order, visit thehealthinvestment.com slash thrivemarket, or just click through the link in the show notes. And one more thing, if you've been dieting for years, but nothing has helped you keep the weight off long-term, I'm so glad you're hearing this because outside of hosting this podcast, I spend my time helping people lose weight for good in both my group and one-on-one coaching programs. Unlike extreme restrictive diets that only provide short-term results, I help you master the skill of everything in moderation so you can finally lose those 5 to 50 pounds permanently, feel completely in control of your cravings and less snacky between meals, have steady energy throughout the day, and show up as the healthiest, happiest version of yourself. To learn more about my programs, visit thehealthinvestment.com or follow me on Instagram at thehealthinvestment. All right, it's time to hear from Dr. Jampolis. Enjoy. I'm Brooke Simonson, certified nutrition coach and your host of the Health Investment Podcast. If you're ready to look and feel your best, without any confusion, frustration, or stress, you're in the right place. Each week, I interview experts and share no-nonsense, research-backed tips so that you can finally lose weight for good, eat healthy long-term, have the high energy you crave, and feel like a million bucks. I'm so happy you're here with me today. Don't forget to hit subscribe so that you never miss an episode. 
Hi, Dr. Jampolis. Thank you so much for joining me today on the Health Investment Podcast. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. I know you have a very unique board certification as a nutrition specialist. So I would love to hear, first of all, like what led you to become a doctor and then to get that specialized nutrition certification, if you will. Sure. Yeah. Well, that's funny. What led me to a doctor is going to be probably a bit different from uh, what most other people say. Um, I certainly, you know, always cared profoundly about, you know, people and taking care of people and did, you know, a lot of charity work early on when I was younger, but I actually always wanted to be a vet growing up. (laughs) So I was a total science nerd and uh, math, and um, I really wanted to be a vet and take care of animals. And I worked for a vet um, one summer in high school and, you know, seeing animals suffer and how people cared for their pets and they'd bring them in and we'd be like, okay, you need to spend a hundred dollars on this. And they'd say, never mind, just put them down. And I just couldn't do it emotionally. So I was like, all right, I'm already, already a science nerd. I love helping people from a philanthropic standpoint. I'll just go to med school and become a doctor. Um, so that's how the medicine uh, came to pass. And then the nutrition was really more interesting and involved. Um, you know, I wasn't really sure what specialty I wanted to do. Um, so I ended up doing something kind of, you know, generic in, in becoming board certified in internal medicine. But I knew that I didn't want to do that because, um, you know, people just spent all day every day putting people on medications for blood pressure and high, uh, you know, diabetes. And it just didn't seem very rewarding to me. So after I finished my residency, which was actually in the Bay Area, so I was at, in San Jose um, at a Stanford Teaching Hospital. And, um, you know, after I took my internal medicine boards, which, you know, several months to study for, um, you know, my parents were like, well, what do you want to do now? And I said, well, I want to go into business. And they're like, wait, what? You just spent seven years training. Um, And anyways, so to make a long story short, um, I did that temporarily. I went into research, um, you know, a startup medical device company and, you know, was kind of dismayed at the business side of medicine as well. So um, I got a job on Craigslist, actually working at a weight loss clinic. Um, This was, gosh, you know, over 20 years ago. And it was kind of like one of those light bulb moments in life where I said, you know, this is how I can really profoundly impact people's lives. Um, But I didn't want to do it that way. I didn't want to do it by putting people on pills and shakes. And so I kind of took it upon myself back then to learn everything that I could about nutrition. You know, doctors, they were not teaching us anything about nutrition. They still don't teach us very much, which is tragic. Um, So I, you know, read textbooks, went to nutrition meetings, uh, worked with dietitians, did everything that I could to learn about nutrition. And then I found out about this relatively unknown board certification as a physician nutrition specialist and um, studied for those boards, sat for the boards and passed them. And then, you know, started on this journey of really focusing more on preventive medicine and food as medicine. And um, I've never looked back. <laughs> wow. I always find that so crazy. I've asked many MDs on the podcast how much nutrition education they got in med school, and their answers vary from four hours to three days, but I haven't heard really, maybe somebody said a week at one point, but it's it's not much. No, not at all. It's it's just... 
I mean, we and we've tried to change that. And I, you know, I, I'm the past president of the National Board of Physician Nutrition Specialists, and I'm on the board of directors for the American Society of Nutrition. And it's this constant, constant battle to try to uh, educate more young physicians, get them excited. I do have hope. I think you know that's one of the pluses of the pandemic. The very few is that it has given you know, the consumer more insight into the idea that of really, you know, food is medicine and a healthy lifestyle and the importance. And I think um, young physicians are seeing that, you know, I'm contacted by more and more that are really interested in what I'm doing and how they can learn more uh, and build a foundation. But I mean, it's just astounding to me still that it doesn't play a bigger role because I feel like there is a nutrition component to every single system in the body, every disease, head to toe, um, you know, that nutrition and diet and healthy lifestyle on some level plays a role. Right. And, and, and the fact that the medical community hasn't really, you know, acknowledged that, or if they have just hasn't integrated it into a sig profound, significant way um, is disheartening to me, but I'm, I'm not, I'm not giving up. <laughs> good. I'm glad we need <laughs> champions like you out there fighting the good fight for sure. I definitely want to get to the topic of weight loss because I know that's one of your specialties, but I'm super intrigued about your books, Spice Up, Slim Down, and Spice Up, Live Long. I've never had anybody on the podcast talk specifically about spices, and I'd love to know what motivated you to write books on spices. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think it was about seven or eight years ago that I attended a um, virtual symposium uh, from that was put on by the NIH, the National Institute of Health. Um, and the topic was, um, you know, uh, all of the benefits of curcumin, which is the active ingredient in the spice turmeric. And I just remember looking at this slide and it had like 50 different disorders that could, you know, on some level benefit from the bioactive in the spice turmeric. And I'm like, wow, if this is the case for this spice, you know, what else can spices do? Like this, it just hadn't been on my radar at all from a, from a health standpoint. I mean, certainly for flavor, although my little, you know, hidden secret is that I'm not much of a cook. So it's not like I had, you know, used herbs and spices extensively in the kitchen. But um, so I, I just embarked on like this journey of, of learning. And, and the more I dove into it, you know, the more excited I was about it. And then when you think about the fact that, you know, the herbs and spices have been used medicinally for thousands of years in every other culture, but ours, you know, I just decided this is something that I need to do. I need to, you know, of course, be as evidence-based as possible and in, in sticking with the science. And, um, but I need to educate the masses on the potential healing and preventive benefits of herbs and spices. And so, um, you know, it's, it, uh, the first book, I also, you know, I'm a realist, so I knew that I needed to sell books. So the first, and because I had been doing, you know, weight loss predominantly for many years, um, the first book was more focused on, um, you know, weight management and, and particularly associated diseases like diabetes and, and, um, heart disease. Um, but with this most recent book, Spice Up, Live Long, I really wanted to focus on everything and, and the longevity 
potential benefits. And, and, you know, I just feel like it's such a low hanging fruit. Like I'm not asking people to spend thousands of dollars on supplements or tests or organic or this or that. I'm just asking them to go into their spice cabinet or, you know, get that basil plant next time you're at the grocery store and doing simple things like that, that have so much potential upside. Um, so it's been really exciting and it's an ongoing process where, you know, there's more and more research and I try to stay on top of it. And, you know, it, it's just amazing to me, you know, plants really have these, these superpowers. And, and we, you know, when we say eat more plants, we think of fruits and vegetables, but herbs and spices definitely belong right up there along with fruits and vegetables. I love that mindset shift, even just right there of eat more plants, fruits and vegetables, but then just expanding that idea to your spice cabinet could just be such a simple little mindset shift to have. And just to start using them, like you said, more in all cooking. I mean, it can't hurt, right? (laughs) Absolutely. I mean, you know, I'm not saying that they all cure cancer, although there's some really intriguing research and cell studies, you know, that just from uh, uh, like antioxidant potential and protecting your cell from damages and things like that. I mean, they may play a role when they're used as part of a healthy diet. But, you know, I'm really about finding, you know, practical solutions for people. Um, I don't believe that everybody should be perfect. I mean, that's why, you know, I started my own podcast, Practically Healthy, just Practical has always been a really key part of my recommendations. And if I can't do it, I don't expect you to. Um, But I just think even with me, who's culinarily challenged, um, (laughs) I am able to do it, you know, just throwing some oregano in my eggs or some, you know, cumin in a store-bought guacamole, whatever it is, you know, there's where there's a will, there's a way, and you definitely can make it happen and more than likely improve your health at the same time. Wow. So you mentioned oregano, cumin, and turmeric. Are there any super bang for your buck spices that you would say use these as much as possible? Well, definitely turmeric. I mean, um, you know, that that one is kind of the anti-inflammatory superstar. I haven't, I'm going to be perfectly candid. I haven't figured out how to use it that well on its own. Like the flavor is tough for me, but using it yeah. as part of curries or to add color to things, I think is wonderful. I mean, cayenne pepper, you know, I, I know a lot of people think, you know, stay away from spice foods that they think it exacerbates heartburn. And and certainly that can be the case uh, sometimes. But on the flip side, there's research showing that cayenne pepper can actually improve or help heal ulcers. And certainly from a metabolic standpoint, from an antioxidant standpoint, you know, from a metabolism standpoint, um, I think cayenne is great. I mean, I, they, they, you know, people always say, what are your top five? And it's so hard for me to answer that. Um, I think rosemary is wonderful in terms of potential cancer prevention benefits. Thyme is wonderful. Um, there's really no one that is, you know, I, I think turmeric has the most research, um, uh, mm. you know, cayenne uh, from a longevity standpoint diets that are spicier, people tend to live um, 14% longer, you know, have actually 14% decreased risk of dying young. So, um, but everything, oregano is great for the gut. Um, It's really highly, most herbs and spices are very powerful prebiotics. So they help support the healthy bacteria in your gut. So I always tell people to go with what's easy and what you like. And then, you know, if you want to 
try play around with a few other things. Those are some of the good ones. Um, but there's just, you know, the list goes on and on and it really depends on what you're interested in from a health standpoint. That's why, you know, there is no one right answer. I love also your practical recommendations because I always say the same. I'm not going to ask you to do something I wouldn't do. I just think that's bogus. <laughs> I don't know who should be doing that out there. That's a bad way to give advice, but it's a great notion you mentioned of using what tastes good to you and what's easy for you. And, you know, we all have different palates. I love your example of just throwing some spice into a store-bought guacamole, for example. It's not even that you have to make everything from scratch when you're using your spices. Yeah, just throw absolutely. It on. Yeah. And you don't have to eat perfectly healthy either. I mean, there's a study of rosemary um, that was done by my colleague at UCLA that when you use it in like a marinade on red meat and you cook meat at high temperatures, it can actually increase the formation of things called heterocyclic amines, which are potentially cancer causing. And just adding rosemary to the meat or to a marinade on the meat decreases the production of heterocyclic amines by about 70%. So it's not like I'm telling you to eat eat only wild caught salmon. And I mean, you can have your steak, just throw a little rosemary on it and you'll be much better, not perfect. Mm -hmm. That's a great advice. And it sounds like if somebody's using one or two spices now, even if you were just to up it to three or four, just get curious with a couple more that could have awesome effects on your health overall and just, you know, slow and steady, maybe just get a few more in your spice cabinet every every few weeks or months. Yeah. And just play around with, you know, recipes. And, and like you said, I mean, even, you know, store-bought chili, I mean, you know, and soups where you just throw some, you know, fresh or dried herbs or a, like bump up the, you know, cumin or, or put a little dash of cayenne in, you know, it, there's just, it, it, you know, just, it, it just, if it's front of mind and you make it a priority, you'll be surprised at how many ways, I mean, I put cinnamon in my coffee every morning. I mean, it just, mm. there's so many different ways where you can like slowly integrate more spices where you can spice up your life. <laughs> Yeah, that's funny you say that. My husband is a big fan of cold brew mm -hmm. coffee and he makes it all the time and he even has this whole Instagram about it. But we had a friend over on the weekend and he offered the person some co some cold brew and the person took him up on it. And his friend was like, is there cinnamon in this coffee? <laughs> and he said, yeah, I, I infuse all the cold brew with cinnamon and usually some maybe some nutmeg or some other spices. But so many creative ways to get spices, even, for example, in coffee. It doesn't have to be just in soup. Obviously, soup's a great way as well. But um, I love I love your approach of just get creative, try it out. What's the worst that could happen, right? Maybe something tastes a little funky, so don't use that one next time. Exactly. Really. Yeah. The yeah. Word, yeah. So and and start slow. You know, don't yeah. certainly don't dump a ton of spices. And my husband, of course, when I when I first when I wrote my first book, he he got you know he heard me do all these you know TV shows and was listening in the background. So he decided to like dump everything into everything that he was cooking, and it tasted <laughs> like dirt. And I'm like, okay, that's not quite what I had in mind when I said you know you, you do do try to you know look at recipes and see where, you know, usually the nice thing about all these, you know, digital assets is that you can find where somebody says, oh, I didn't like the rosemary, I substituted it with this, or, oh, I added a little extra this. And so there's a lot of great resources out there where I think you can really, you know, be creative, but don't, you know, uh, don't try, just try to dump everything together because definitely not everything works together. Take it from me. <laughs> 
Right. And then you're going to end up hating spices. Exactly. You're going to think they make things taste gross. That's funny. Uh, so moving on to weight loss, a lot of listeners are interested in better overall health, some specifically in weight loss. I don't know. This is a tough question, but I love to ask if you had to summarize your weight loss philosophy on a billboard, you could use several sentences if you want. It doesn't have to be just one. What would that billboard read? That is a great question. I mean, um, I, the best thing is is like find your path, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, it is so individualized, um, not even in just how people, you know, or, or make it livable. Maybe, maybe that would be a better mm-hmm. one um, because, you know, weight loss is just the beginning. You still have to maintain the weight. And I, I think with any extreme or anything that's not truly livable, that doesn't fit into your lifestyle, that you don't, whether it's foods that you don't like, you know, or, or you know, whatever it is, or, or intermittent fast. I can't, I cannot do intermittent fasting. I cannot. If I try to skip breakfast, I sit at my desk listening to my stomach rumbling, obsessing about when I'm going to eat first. So, you know, find something that's truly livable um, for you because, you know, if it's not, you're going to slowly regain the weight. That's just all there is to it, you know? Um, so I, I think um, that that's that's probably my, my key that I really push patients to, um, you know, and yes, you're going to have to change some habits. I mean, obviously you, you can't keep doing which, you know, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over and expecting a different outcome. But, you know, I think first and foremost, ask yourself, could you see yourself doing this five years from now, some version of it, um, and then go from there. So, um, you know, and, and don't, if, if it sounds too good to be true, it is. <laughs> that, that'd be the other side of my billboard or whatever, you know, I'm, I'm not sure. It's, um, but that, that, that's a, it's a fun way of looking at it, but it is very, and the interesting thing too, is that the, you know, National Institute of Health, their 10 year initiative, 2020 to 2030 is really focused on more personalized precision, um, nutrition. So I think, you know, the idea don't, just because your neighbor had success with X, Y, Z doesn't mean you are, don't get frustrated, you know, um, find your way, your path, what works best for your body, your lifestyle, your food preferences, you know, your, your schedule, whatever it is. Um, cause if you don't, if it doesn't fit into your lifestyle, it's not going to work long-term. I love that so much. Everything you just said, I've said in one way or another. So I'm glad we're hundred percent on the same page. I think it's just so detrimental, like you said, and frustrating when now in the advent of social media, maybe somebody sees a friend or a colleague has had success with, you mentioned intermittent fasting, and maybe they lost 20 pounds and it worked for them. And then that person tries it and then feels just like the ultimate moral failure when they can't do it. And then they think, well, you know, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy of, well, I'm doomed again. There's something else I tried and didn't work and it's never going to work for me. And really that's just not your path. Yeah, no, it, 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 it really, I mean, you know, social media is tough. I was, I just had a board call this morning with the American Society of Nutrition and we were just talking about, 
you know, these influencers that, and who knows what they're really eating. I mean, who knows what the real story is with these people or, I mean, and it's, you know, unfortunately most of the actual experts just don't have a lot of time for social media. So, so, um, they're not the best information. And also, you know, the best information is not always the sexiest and the most Instagram worthy or whatever doesn't fit in a TikTok video. It's a, so it's, um, it definitely, but it's, it's, uh, you know, and, and things change and, and certainly, you know, for men and women, it's different advice, different stages of your life. It's going to be different things that work for you. You know, there's, it's, it's complex and you can't try to, you know, there is no one size fits all. That's for sure. I'd love if you could share just kind of the science behind why it's harder to lose weight each time you end up losing it quickly and then gaining it back what that does to your metabolism and how that can kind of mess you up long-term the more of these fads you try. Yeah, that's a really interesting question. I think, you know, and, and it's complicated and there's, there's argument among the scientific community when, you know, like when you look at studies, like, um, uh, there was a paper about the, the biggest loser participants, you know, where they're losing drastic amounts of weight very quickly. Um, and, um, the, you know, there can be hormonal changes that really set you up for weight regain. And then the drops, there's some evidence that even five years later, they have not fully recovered metabolically. And we don't fully understand that. There's a process called adaptive thermogenesis, which is pretty complicated and 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 challenging. But I think the main thing, and this is especially important for women as we get older, is that when you lose weight quickly, unfortunately, your body is not that smart. And it doesn't know that it should go only for fat and not lose anything else to make up for that caloric deficit. So when you lose weight very quickly and go on extreme diets or fad diets or fasts or whatever, where you're really restricting calories significantly, you are going to lose some muscle. Now, muscle burns more calories per ounce, three times as much, three to five times as much, you know, per gram than fat does. So what happens is, you'll lose weight quickly. Some of that will be muscle. And when you regain it, it's more than likely going to be fat. So with each round of, we'll call it crash dieting, you get fatter, not necessarily from a scale weight, but from a body composition per percentage standpoint. So you every, and it becomes much harder and harder to regain that muscle once you lose it, particularly as you age, you know, for men, as their testosterone levels start to drop, it's more challenging for women as we go through menopause, you know, that it becomes much more challenging to regain the weight as muscle versus fat. So we become, so we slowly over time, plus there may be some component of the same phenomenon that the biggest loser participants experience where there's hormonal changes that really trigger your body, whether it's holding on to fat as much as possible or extreme triggers in appetite or thyroid hormone or leptin, which is the new hormone that not new, it's been around for a while, but so, you know, it's complicated, but the bottom line, it's not good for you. Um, and, and it is more than likely going to set you up for longer term struggles, which is why, you know, if you have a hundred pounds to lose and you lose five pounds in the first week, that's okay. If you have 10 pounds to lose and you lose five of that in a week, you're more than likely losing muscle mass. And that's, that's not really going to be good for you long-term. 
What are your baseline recommendations for fat loss that's also easy, easier to maintain versus these crash diets? Or you said something you can't see yourself doing five years from now. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, being, being realistic about what you're willing to give up. I mean, I can tell you personally, uh, I have a sweet tooth and, and I feel like if you really, if you cut sweets completely. I mean, yes, I, sometimes if people are really quote unquote addicted, you know, having a 10 day kind of sugar detox where you get off of it just to lose the constant craving and taste, you know, I tend to focus more on, you know, lean protein, not in large amounts, but there is, you know, loads of research showing that slightly higher amounts of protein are important for satiety. So for feeling full, for preserving muscle mass as much as possible, um, for keeping blood sugar more stable. I think eating foods closer to their natural form is important. You know, I think, you know, with these ultra processed foods kind of bypass your body's normal check mechanisms for overconsumption. Um, and eating more plants, you know, I think I, 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 one of my favorite concepts in nutrition that I, I actually have these plastic food models in my office that I'm constantly showing patients is the idea of calorie density. And Mm -hmm. because research shows that we eat with our eyes, not with our stomachs, they did a really cool research project where they had this thing called the bottomless soup bowl. And they, they had this little tube that was set up and they slowly drained the people's soups while they were were eating to see if they noticed and that they were eating more. And the people did not, they ate like 70% more soup and didn't report feeling any more full or like they had eaten more. So we really do eat with our eyes, not with our stomach. So having more volume-based foods. So adding, and this is something that I definitely do personally. And anytime, like I did a really fun, you know, Super Bowl TV segment, but like increasing the volume of your food with vegetables in particular so that you can feel physically and mentally full. So for example, like taking, you know, hamburger meat and chopping up fresh mushrooms and adding them in cuts the calories in half, but keeps the volume the same. And so, Mm -hmm. and this is, you know, for me personally, and I think a lot of people, you know, eat by volume. So that's an important concept, you know, especially as you get older, having protein throughout the day, spreading it out to maintain body composition is very important. Um, You know, I still believe, I believe that particularly women, we still get into problems with healthy fats. You know, we somehow, you know, fats became virtuous. So people are eating avocados and handfuls of nuts as snacks (laughs) and, and, you know, drizzling olive oil on everything. And even though, yes, those are super healthy fats. I think calories do still matter, but the quality in addition to the quantity matter. So you asked me for one thing and I gave you like six, which I, you know, now, um, but I think, you know, those are some of the foundations that I look at, um, you know, for establishing a diet plan. And then I'll tweak them depending, you know, on people, uh, you know, how much do they work out? Do they like carbs that much? Like I'm somebody who I just don't like pasta and rice that much. So it's not a big driver for me at night. I could, you know, never have pasta again and be fine or, and white rice, the only time I ever would eat it or even brown rice is with sushi. So, you know, that's where then the customization and I'll, I'll tweak things for people, but, you know, being realistic with yourself and what you can really do long-term again, it just comes back to that. But those are some of the foundations. I think, you know, lots of vegetables, 
you know, lean protein throughout the day, paying attention to um, healthy fats, not just unlimited. Um, and then, you know, from there, it becomes a little bit more nuanced in terms of, uh, you know, I tend to, if somebody, if you carry your weight more around the middle, if you're more apple shaped than pear shaped, you're going to have to pay attention to carbohydrates more, you know, um, that's, there's pretty good research supporting that. Um, and, and that, by the way, that happens with women as we're, I'm, you know, I'm perimenopausal now. And as our estrogen levels drop, you know, weight shifts from your butt to your gut. And that actually, so your metabolism, how you burn calories actually changes. So, you know, most women, as we get pre perimenopausal, have to be more, uh, pay more attention to carbohydrate total intake um, and adjust it accordingly. Yeah. I'm glad you shared all of those things. I appreciate that and all such great recommendations. You mentioned that you have a sweet tooth and you don't care as much for pasta and rice. And, you know, maybe somebody listening is the reverse of that. What do you tell people when they say they're experiencing intense cravings? Intense cravings for sweets or for carbohydrates? Sweets, carbs, both and or. Yeah, I think some of that is... um, physiological and some of it is psychological. So what I usually tell people, you know, um, uh, you know, it's not, not just a, it, it, it's a complicated question, you know, because what studies show that, I mean, when your blood sugar drops, so if you have, you know, a high carb breakfast, for example, um, you know, if you had something like a bagel and fat-free cream cheese, which we used to have, you know, in the eighties and nineties thinking that was virtuous, you're going to have a spike in your blood sugar, um, which is going to then cause insulin to go up and then your blood sugar is going to crash. And that's going to cause physical cravings for something sweet because your blood sugar is low. So your, your brain is going to think I need sugar. So number one is to try to prevent the physiological craving. So you do that by keeping blood sugar stable, which is generally done by having, you know, balanced meals that have lean protein, healthy fat, fiber, have making sure that your meals are balanced um, like that will help prevent the physiological cravings to some extent. The other thing that I tell people is not to eat around your cravings. So if, if you're, and if you're craving whatever, uh, let's just say it's, you know, a Girl Scout cookie, don't try to have like, don't try to eat 20 different things to satisfy you. And, and then mm-hmm. sometimes just a little bit of what you're actually craving is is the right approach at the end of the day. Um, so it, it really varies, I think. And and the other thing is just a lot of it is is psychological cravings. And again, that notion that we eat with our eyes, not with our stomachs. I mean, not having those foods that you crave visible or smelling like smell triggers, habits trigger. If you drive by the same Starbucks that you get that scone every day, change your route, you know, Mm -hmm. change the behavior around those cravings to see if you can overcome them. You know, it just, it's, it really is variable, you know, but I think for the most part, I mean, 
it, there really is truth to the out of sight, out of mind, you know? So if you have to have stuff in the house that you crave for your kids or whatever, putting it on a higher cabinet where you don't see it every time you open the cabinet or every time you open the fridge, these behavioral tactics to try to minimize cravings can really make a big difference. Or even, you know, simple things like not going to the grocery store hungry so that, you know, you're not salivating at the checkout line when you see the whatever it is, Reese's peanut butter cups, you know, fill in the blanks. So, um, you know, and, and then, so that, that's, you know, one of the things I think, you know, artificial sweeteners are, are something that I, I don't recommend, you know, anymore. I've changed my tune in the last decade. You know, I think, um, that's something that we, we, you know, you don't want to try to satisfy your cravings for sweet with artificial sweeteners because some of them are like 200 to 600 times sweeter than sugar. So they can actually increase your sweet tooth and make naturally occurring sugar or even regular sugar not taste sweet enough. So what I don't think is the answer is artificial sweeteners. Um, I, I do use like stevia and monk fruit, you know, those are non-nutritive, more natural sweeteners. Um, but uh, I, I, I try to discourage people from artificial sweeteners and even from, you know, diet sodas. I, I, I admit I used to be like a diet Coke addict and I mm. really think it affected my appetite and, uh, and, and cravings. I think it made me crave more sweets and carbohydrates than, than, and now I have it as a treat. I have, it sounds so funny, but I have laid a, you know, a Coke zero on occasion as a treat, but that's it. It's definitely not part of my, uh, regular diet. So if someone's a soda drinker, regular soda drinker, do you recommend making the switch to diet soda initially and then trying to taper off soda completely from there if if that's what needs to be done yeah yeah um I, you know i i you know in a perfect world i would make you know obviously we're not i mean it, yeah i try to be realistic i i i'm not that's a, you know that's a good question nobody's ever asked me that um I, I think uh, it's a good start, but I'm not sure whether it's really the solution. I would rather than yeah. slowly have less soda, make it a treat, and then or try to switch to you know sparkling water. There's so many wonderful brands of flavored sparkling water now. Um, or just I, it depends on what they're addicted to. If it's the sweets or the caffeine, or you know, it, it kind of depends what it is. But you know, if they feel like diet soda is an easier lateral move, then, you know, I'm probably okay with that, but I'm going to try to wean them off of it fairly quickly. Cause I think more and more studies are coming out and, you know, it's hard to tell because the studies are complicated to do, whether it's cause and effect or, but that, you know, uh, diet soda really isn't so great for you. <laughs> right. Right. Usually if somebody is on a weight loss journey, they're typically looking to improve overall health as well. So taking a look at it from that aspect, I guess, so this is not a health food. Right. Yeah. Even though yeah. it has, yeah. And, and as, and it doesn't like offset, you know, if you have the burger and fries and a diet Coke, you're not really like doing yourself a favor there. <laughs> right. Right. Is there anything else? I'm curious that you've changed your mind about, you mentioned the uh, diet sodas or the, the artificial sweeteners, but over the years of working with clients and the research that has come about, in terms of weight loss or nutrition, anything else you've changed your mind about? Um, you know, it's really funny because I, I wrote my first book in 
to uh, publish my first book in 2007. And I look back at it and I pretty much agree with everything that I said. I think one of the things is I have, you know, be, I, I think there's more emerging data on, you know, really how ultra processed foods are making us sicker and not helping with weight loss. So I, I think I've become more aware and, and sensitive to, you know, uh, packaged foods. I, I certainly don't avoid them completely, but, you know, I do pay more attention, um, you know, even emerging data on emulsifiers and different things like that and ultra processed food. I think I've had a much greater awareness of that, um, you know, and I, but um, ironically, that's the thing like nutrition, everybody, I I've been talking about cutting back on sugar and decreasing the inflammatory potential of the diet for like 17 years now. So I, 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 not to toot my own horn, but I think I was pretty much, uh, on track, uh, you know, from the beginning I do, you know, uh, yeah, I, I, I haven't really changed my tune on that much. I've you know, developed a greater understanding of the importance of specific nutrients. Um, you know, I still believe that supplements, smart supplementation does work. I think, you know, in a perfect world, we would all eat and get everything from food, but I just don't think that's realistic for most people. So I, you know, even though many doctors poo-poo supplements and, and say that it's all, you know, malarkey or fish oil, snake oil, um, you know, I, I don't, I don't believe that. Um, so, uh, no, I think, you know, the artificial sweeteners is, is the big one and, and it's, it's really, um, it's, it's more powerful in beverage form, I think, than it is in, in food form. Although I still try to stay away from them and I recommend that my patients do even in food form, but, um, mm. you know, I haven't, uh, I, I think one, you know, I don't recommend keto. It's not, I'm just not a big fan. I, I just don't believe that the long-term effects in terms of all that saturated fat could possibly be good for you. But I am more open to patients using that if they really feel like they need to, um, to kind of get started. And, and, and I also, you know, in terms of rapid weight loss, and I, I'm not contradicting myself here, but studies do show that early initial success can predict longer term success. So I do push people to, to be a little stricter with themselves for the first, you know, 10 to 14 days, just to really get on the right path, get some confidence going, you know, but I, uh, so I maybe, I may be a little bit more aggressive than I used to be. Um, you know, the first, cause I realized I lost a lot of people if they didn't have really good results, um, not crazy good results, but you know, better than half a pound a week. That's not too motivating for most people. I think when they're first starting on a plan and they feel like they're making all these great changes. Right. Right. And yeah, the wins are so motivating. Like the actions you're taking when you actually see results makes you want to take more action. So, but you have to see some results first. Right. I think one more thing, just to, you know, I know we're, we're, we're learning long, but, um, is, you know, I, I do, I definitely, I think, the importance or lack thereof of exercise in terms of weight loss, mm. um, you know, from a health standpoint and from a maintenance, but really, you know, helping patients understand if you have your choice between the two, 
focus mm-hmm. on diet first and then bring in the exercise portion. And then the importance of strength training too. I think there's been a lot more research showing, you know, how important it is metabolically. And when I say met- metabolism, I'm just not, I'm not talking just about how many calories you burn in a day. I'm talking about how effectively you burn them. So people, mm. you know, optimizing your metabolism on multiple levels is, you know, just, and that's not changing my thing is it's just having a greater understanding of what's important. Right. Yeah. Well, I'm so grateful for all of the wisdom you shared with us today. This is a jam-packed episode, and I know my listeners love those. Really a bang-for-your-buck episode, if you will. Um, I ask each of my guests a final question, which is, in your opinion, what does it mean to make the health investment? Yeah, I was thinking about that a lot, trying to understand. And, And the first two words that, you know, jumped into my head are, um, consistency uh well actually i think i really think just consistent consistent not perfect you know consistency mm-hmm. not perfection like if you try to be perfect you're setting yourself up for failure and it's really just about consistency like i do most things right most of the time i don't do everything right all the time so but i am i am quite consistent and i don't let myself deviate too much and that's why i try to impart these permanent habits uh you know in in patients and and listeners or viewers or readers or whatever it is you know really trying to be so that they can be consistent because health is an everyday you know it's it's a marathon, not a sprint. And, and, um, you know, I want people to increase their health span, not just their life span. And in order to do that, you have to be consistent. I love that. Perfectly said. I couldn't agree more. (laughs) Perfect. Where could listeners follow and find you? Uh, well, as I mentioned earlier, I'm not that active on social media, but I am on Instagram and Facebook at Dr. Melina. Um, and I have a website, drmelina.com. That's D-R-M-E-L-A-M-E-L-I-N-A.com. And I recently started my own podcast called Practically Healthy by Dr. Melina. And um, it's really been fun. I try to interview experts and, you know, celebrities and athletes and really making them give listeners practical tips, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, so I argue with some of them, like my buddy, Dr. Barry Sears, who wrote the zone diets, you know, I'm like, okay, Barry, nobody is going to eat one macadamia nut. So tell us what we can <laughs> and should do. Okay, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> Let's get to the bottom of this. Let's make this practical. I love that. Well, I'll put links to all of those places in the show notes. And thank you so, so much for giving us your time today and sharing again, all of your wisdom with my audience. My pleasure. It was fun talking to you. Well, that's all for today. Thanks again for joining me here on the health investment podcast. I'm so grateful for each and every one of my listeners on your way out. Remember to hit subscribe so that you never miss an episode. See you next week. All content in this podcast was created for general informational purposes only by a non-physician. None of the content should serve as a substitute for professional medical advice, treatment, or diagnosis. Always consult a qualified health provider with any questions regarding a medical condition and before making changes to your diet, lifestyle, and or exercise programs.
Do not disregard any professional medical advice you have received or postpone seeking such advice because of something you heard on this podcast.